Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast and on YouTube every single Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about a solved case, the case of Denise Huber. This is a terrifying case. It's a tragic case, and it's one that's definitely going to keep you looking over your shoulder. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Denise Huber was born on November 22nd, 1967 in Modesto, California to her parents, Dennis and Ione Huber. She graduated high school at the Los Angeles Baptist School in 1985 and then went on to further her education at several different universities, including Richland College located in Dallas, Texas, as well as Covenant College in Chattanooga, Tennessee, before graduating with her bachelor's in social sciences in 1990 from UC Irvine. After graduating from college, she moved back home with her parents and got a job working as a waitress in a local restaurant called the Old Spaghetti Factory. The Old Spaghetti Factory was located in Newport Beach, California, which is where Denise was living with her family at the time. And according to Denise's parents, this time and this period of Denise's life was simply about taking some time to get on her feet and save some money. That way she could eventually move out of her parents' house and have a more long-term career for herself as well. But for this time being, she was at home, she was working at the Old Spaghetti Factory, and she absolutely loved loved it. Her co-workers became some of her closest friends. She had a boyfriend that also worked at the Old Spaghetti Factory, so she was in a really exciting time in her life. Denise was a very outgoing person. She was super adventurous, always down to do anything. She was super spontaneous. She loved traveling. She loved going to concerts. She loved being outside and in the outdoors. She was also extremely athletic. And from the beginning, Denise's parents said that raising Denise was an absolute dream. She was the perfect baby. She was the perfect child. She never got heavy into drugs or anything that her parents wouldn't have wanted her to do growing up. She maintained good grades. She was just her parents' dream. And she loved her family. She was incredibly close to her family. And she was just in a perfect place in her life. And her life was just getting started. So this is when we move to June 2nd of 1991, and on this particular night, Denise had plans to go to a concert with a co-worker of hers named Rob. She walked out of the house the night of June 2nd wearing a black dress, a black jacket, black high heels. She was also wearing her heart necklace and her dolphin ring that she always, always wore. Now, before she left, she stuck her head into her parents' window, told them that she loved them and that she wouldn't be home too late before walking out the door. But little did anyone know that that would be the last time that they would ever see Denise. 
So now we're going to fast forward a little bit to 7.30 a.m. on June 3rd, so the day after the concert. And that morning, Denise's mom went to go check on Denise, like I said, at 7.30 in the morning just to make sure that Denise was where she was supposed to be. However, she was shocked when she looked into Denise's room and saw that Denise was not in her bed. Now, in the very beginning, her parents weren't too worried. They thought it was very possible that Denise was spending the night at her best friend Tammy's house or that she went to go see her boyfriend. Their minds didn't go to the worst yet. However, they were unsettled. So they started calling around to some of Denise's friends, her co-workers, just to see if anyone had heard from her that day or knew where she was. However, they were startled to learn that no one had seen Denise ever since the concert had ended. This is when her parents really started to panic because Denise was not the type of person that was just going to go MIA without telling anyone. Like I mentioned, she was super close with her family. She was always abiding by the rules. Even though she didn't have a curfew anymore, she still was responsible. She still was always checking in with her parents, letting them know what was going on. So when she didn't come home and no one else had heard from her, that is when they really started to panic. Denise's friends told her parents that the last time she was seen was when she got into her car and drove away from the concert, and all of Denise's friends had just assumed that Denise was heading home. Her parents then began calling around to local hospitals to see if Denise had gone in admitted anywhere, if God forbid she had gotten into a car accident. However, none of the hospitals knew where she was either. So when Denise's best friend, Tammy, heard that Denise didn't make it home, she decided that she was going to take matters into her own hands and she was going to retrace the drive that Denise would have had to make from the concert to her parents' house to see if she could find anything. And once Tammy began making that drive, she was shocked to find Denise's car on the side of the road. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Denise's car was found on the 73 off-ramp in Corona Del Mar heading towards Newport Beach, which is the direction that Denise would have been needing to go on her way home. When Tammy found the car, she immediately called Denise's parents who frantically drove over to where the car was. Now, the first thing that all of them noticed about the car was that all of the windows had been rolled down and that the battery of the car was dead. 
Her parents also noticed that the car had a flat tire, and when they looked into the car, they noticed Denise's pantyhose were on the front passenger seat of the car, which according to Denise's mother was not uncommon because Denise had a habit of taking them off when she got into the car because she was more comfortable driving without them on. So to see those in the car wasn't surprising. However, what was surprising was the fact that all of Denise's belongings like her purse and her wallet were nowhere to be found in this car. And it was at that point after they had all found the car that Denise's parents finally decided the best thing to do is to file a missing persons report for their daughter, Denise. Now, when police got this missing persons report, they began their investigation very promptly. They dispatched helicopters that same night on June 3rd. These helicopters used infrared flashlights. They had multiple police officers canvassing the area, trying to see if there was any piece of evidence or if they could find Denise's purse or her wallet, but nothing was recovered. Now, again, in the beginning of this investigation, police knew that the one person that they needed to talk to was Rob. And again, Rob was the co-worker that went with Denise to the old spaghetti factory. So police went and brought Rob in for questioning. When Rob sat down with police, he told them that him and Denise went to the concert that night. However, that wasn't the initial plan. Denise's boyfriend, a man named Steve, who, like I mentioned, had also worked at the spaghetti factory. Steve had originally purchased the tickets for him and Denise to go to the concert. However, Steve ended up having to pick up a shift at work that night, so he wasn't going to be able to take her. So that is when Steve had asked Rob himself if Rob was would accompany Denise to the concert because this is a band that she really wanted to see. She was really excited about it. So Steve then asked Rob if he would take her and Rob agreed. Rob claimed that the two of them went to the concert together and after the concert, they drove over to this little local dive bar that was right by the venue. They had a drink or two and then got back into Denise's car at about 2.05 a.m. And that is when Denise drove Rob to his house and dropped him off. Rob said that he remembered the time being approximately 2.05 a.m. because he remembered looking at the clock and realizing that he had to work the next day. So he was trying to map out in his head how many hours of sleep he was going to be able to get that night. So that is how he was able to give police that time frame. Now, during the questioning, investigators learned that Rob did have a little bit of a crush on Denise. He said that he had feelings for Denise. He liked Denise. However, Denise had made it very clear to him that their relationship was strictly platonic. It was when investigators learned that Rob had this crush on Denise that they started to wonder if Rob decided to retaliate against Denise if she had rejected him. They thought that that could be a very big possibility. So they tried whatever they could to get Rob's story to crack. They brought him in multiple times for questioning. However, each and every time, Rob stuck to his story. His story stayed the same. They went to the concert, they went to the bar, and then he got dropped off at home. 
After questioning him on multiple occasions, police then had Rob take a polygraph test and he actually ended up passing the test with flying colors. And it was at the point that Rob passed the test that police knew that they needed to switch directions a little bit. And that is when they decided to now bring Steve in for questioning. Now, when police sat down with Steve, Steve was able to confirm Rob's original story, saying that he had bought these tickets for him and Denise to go. However, he found out that he had to work, so he had asked if Rob would take her instead. Steve said that he knew that something was wrong when the next day rolled around and he had still not heard from Denise. Through talking to other employees at the old spaghetti factory and looking at security cameras and things like that, police were able to confirm Steve's alibi that he was at the old spaghetti factory into the early morning hours of June 3rd working. So now with all of that, they have Rob, who is supposedly, as far as everyone knew, the last known person to have seen Denise, as well as Steve, her boyfriend. Both of those people are now ruled out. And at this point, police knew and were fairly certain that Denise had been abducted. It was just filling in the blanks of the rest of the questions, which was who abducted her, when, and why. Now, unfortunately, this case did end up turning cold after quite some time just because police did not know where to turn. Police described this as Denise quite literally vanishing into thin air and they came to a standstill in the investigation. And that was incredibly frustrating for police because they had been so dedicated since the very first day in solving this case and bringing Denise home. However, it was also more frustrating for Denise's family who had always held out hope that Denise would come home safely. Denise's family described this time as being paralyzing. They were consumed with questions about what had happened to their daughter and it seemed like no one could give them the answers. So then we fast forward now to July of 1994. So now we're talking three years after Denise had originally disappeared. And it was in July of 1994 that this case got cracked open again. And it was all thanks to two people who had zero connection to Denise or her family. In July of 1994, in a town called Prescott Valley, Arizona, there was a married couple named Jack and Elaine Court. They had moved to Prescott Valley in the early 1990s to retire, and they sold paint supplies at local swap meets. Now, in July of 1994, while they were at a flea market one day, Jack and Elaine had stumbled upon a station of the flea market that was being ran by someone who sold painting-related items similar to the ones that Jack and Elaine would also sell. So Jack and Elaine stop at this station, and they start talking with the man who was running this station and this man is named John Famolaro. So at this point, John, Jack, and Elaine all start talking and Jack informed the couple that he had quite a few more supplies that the couple might be interested in for selling back at his house that he could sell them. So he invited Jack and Elaine to come over to his house, which was also in Prescott Valley, so he could sell them those items. 
So Jack and Elaine did accept this invitation and they ended up going over to John's home. Now, when they got to John's home and after they had gotten the supplies that they wanted, Jack had looked to his wife, Elaine, when they had gotten in the car to leave and something stuck out to Jack while he was there. Jack told Elaine that he thought it was very strange that John had a giant rider moving truck in his backyard. Jack said that the reason he thought this was strange to begin with was because John had mentioned to him that he had moved to Prescott Valley six months prior. So Jack thought that it was a little strange that John still had this moving truck and thought that more than likely, John might've stole the truck. So because of that, Jack and Elaine take down the license plate of this moving truck. And they actually had a deputy that they were friends with and they were able to pass along this information to the deputy at the Prescott Valley Police Department and when they did and the deputy looked into it the deputy was able to confirm that this giant moving truck was in fact stolen. The truck had been reported stolen six months prior from Southern California, and it was at that point that the deputy got into his car and drove over to John's house himself to check out the truck. Now, when the police got there, they first noticed, well, first of all, John was not home. So John was nowhere to be found. He was not at the house when police initially arrived. However, when police got to the backyard where the truck was, they noticed multiple containers, multiple large containers of chemicals surrounding the truck, as well as an extension cord in the back of the truck. And because of that, they initially thought that John could have been running a drug lab from this moving truck. And because of that, the police called in the narcotics team and had the narcotics team meet them at John's house within the hour. And when the narcotics team arrived, they also came with a search warrant to search the moving truck. Now, again, this all happened in the span of an hour, so John was still not home. When police were able to get into the truck, they noticed a freezer in the back of the truck. And again, when they saw the deep freezer, they assumed that it was filled with drugs. That's what they thought they were going to find when they opened this deep freezer. However, they could have never anticipated what would be inside when they opened it. Upon opening the deep freezer, police found multiple large trash bags, as well as what appeared to be frozen dried blood at the bottom of this freezer. Police were able to tell that there was something inside of the plastic bags. And when they cut the bags open is when they discovered the body of a frozen adult female inside of this freezer. The woman was found on her knees with her head bent down and her arms were kept behind her back with handcuffs. The woman also had a cloth stuffed into her mouth that was secured with duct tape. So she had a cloth and duct tape over her mouth. And it was at the exact same time that police discovered this body that John Famolaro pulled up into the driveway. When John got out of the car and noticed all of the police and noticed the police inside of the truck, he did not appear to be frantic in the slightest. However, he did begin to ask police why they were there. 
Now, police had to think very quickly about this and decide how they wanted to go about it. So initially, instead of telling John that they had found the body inside of the freezer, they told John that they had noticed that this truck had been stolen. John had told police that he had been using the truck and just forgot to bring it back, and this is just a big misunderstanding. However, police knew that they needed to bring him in for questioning. And it was finally when police sat down John in the interrogation room and began talking to him, they told him that they knew about the body in the freezer. And when police told John this, John's cool, calm, collected, nonchalant demeanor completely turned off and he refused to speak to police and he also asked for a lawyer. However, luckily at that point, police had enough to arrest John. So it was on that same day in July of 1994 that they were able to arrest John not only for a stolen vehicle, but also for first degree murder. So it took two days for the woman's body in the freezer to completely thaw out. That way they could do DNA testing on the body. And in that time, police were able to get a search warrant for John's home in Prescott Valley. Now, when they walked into his home, the first thing that they noticed was that John was a hoarder. His house was an absolute mess. There were boxes everywhere. There were weapons all throughout the home. Everything was thrown around the house and police could barely even walk through the home. Now, finally, when police were able to go through some of the things that John had kept, they found a box in John's home that was labeled Christmas. When police opened that box, they found a hammer that had blood stains on it, as well as dried tissue wrapped around it as well. Not only that, throughout the home, police found multiple pieces of women's clothing, as well as purses, wallets, social security cards that belonged to multiple women. Now, finding this made police begin to question if the body in the freezer was the only victim. So police kept making their way through the home and it was when they got to the basement that they found a door and when they opened this door they realized that John had dug out an underground chamber underneath his house that appeared to be a small sized room now even though police didn't find anything or anyone in that room police described the entire thing as incredibly eerie they ended up bringing cadaver dogs over to John's house to search throughout the house and the backyard because they thought that it was very possible with all of their findings that the woman in the freezer was not the only victim. However, when the cadaver dogs were brought in, there were no other signs of a decomposed body. Now, because police found multiple items that belonged to multiple different women, they were able to get in contact with one woman who had had an encounter with John where she claimed that one night she had met John and the two of them were supposed to go back to his house together. However, what ended up actually happening was that John drove her out to the middle of the desert in Phoenix and it was there that he attempted to strangle her. However, luckily this woman was able to fight for her life and escape John and she ended up running into the desert without any clothes on to get help and luckily she was able to escape John. However, she never reported this incident. 
Now, when it came to the woman in the freezer, like I mentioned, it took several days for her body to thaw out and for police to begin the forensics process in order to get an identification on who this woman was. However, what they were able to do in that meantime, like I mentioned, was go through John's house. And when they did that, as I've said, they've found multiple items belonging to multiple women. Now, some of the items that they found included a black dress, a black jacket, black shoes, a dolphin ring, and a heart necklace. Now, not only that, police also found the purse, wallet, and ID of Denise Huber. Police were able to get in contact with the Newport Beach Police Department and speak to the chief at the time who was in charge of this case, which was Chief Snowden. While at the station one day, Chief Snowden got a call from the Prescott Valley Police Department, and on that call, he was informed that there was a woman in Prescott Valley who might in fact be Denise. Police explained to Chief Snowden that while looking throughout John's home, police found multiple items that belonged to Denise, and they also found newspaper articles about Denise's case that were cut out and kept in John's home, which showed police that John was actively keeping up with Denise's case. He was trying to see how far along police were in finding her. Now, when Chief Snowden heard that the woman in the freezer more than likely was Denise, he went over to the Huber's house and let them know that they might have found Denise in Prescott Valley. It was that afternoon that an autopsy was performed, and through fingerprints, they were able to confirm finally that the body in the freezer was was in fact Denise Huber. They discovered that her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and that she had been struck on the head over 30 times with a claw hammer and that there were also evidence that Denise had been sexually assaulted. And after this, police did a lot more digging on John Famolaro because they wanted to know how him and Denise's paths crossed. And in doing this, they learned that John was actually renting a warehouse out of a storage facility in Orange County. And that warehouse was only minutes away from where Denise's car was found. Now, when police got access to this warehouse, they opened the doors and were horrified at what they saw. In the front of the warehouse, John had created a little makeshift, weird, creepy bedroom in the front of the in the front of the warehouse and in the back of the warehouse was where John created a workshop. Police brought in a crime scene technician who brought a luminal light and when that light was put on the wall, that entire wall had lit up with blood stains. Police were able to do a DNA test on the blood that was on those walls, and they found that the blood on the walls was a positive match to both John Famolaro and Denise Huber. It was at this point that police realized that this was the crime scene of Denise's murder. This was the last place that she ever saw. And because of that, police were able to start piecing together what they believe happened that evening. Now, according to police and what they believe, they say that their theory is that after Denise had dropped Rob off at his house, she began driving home when she noticed that she had a flat tire and that is why she stopped on the 73 
off-ramp. Now, police truly believe that this is simply just a crime of opportunity and that John was just out on the hunt for his next victim on the night that Denise was murdered. They believe that he stumbled upon Denise trying to fix her car and offered to help, and they believe that in doing so, John had struck her over the head with an object before dragging her into his car and driving her to the warehouse. They believe it was at the warehouse that Denise woke up and kind of came to and realized the situation that she was in, and that is when she began fighting for her life before ultimately she was struck over the head and murdered. Police believe that the motivation in this murder was completely sex-related and that John had murdered Denise after he had raped her. Now, when it comes to the truck, police learned that John had hired two teenagers to drive the rider moving truck from Southern California to Prescott Valley, Arizona. And when police spoke to those teenagers, they learned that John had told the teenagers and instructed them to stop driving every hour. That way they could plug the freezer in to keep the deer meat that he had in the freezer cool. So he told those two teenagers that what he actually had in that freezer was deer meat, not a dead body. Police believe that John kept Denise's body for three years because he was waiting for his underground chamber in the Prescott Valley home to be finished, and they truly believe that that is where Denise's body would have been disposed of if John was able to finish that chamber in time. On July 18th of 1994, John Famolaro pled not guilty to the murder of Denise Huber. The jury deliberated for several hours before convicting John of first-degree murder as well as the kidnapping of Denise Huber. John was sentenced to death and is currently on death row awaiting his execution at the San Quentin State Prison in California. Now, police were never able to connect John to any other murder. However, I think it's very clear just based off of all of the evidence that we've seen today that John was not going to stop and in fact it seemed as if he was just getting started and even though police have never been able to connect him to a prior murder that does not mean that he never convicted a murder before Denise based off of all of the evidence it actually seems more likely that Denise was not his first victim and that he has just been able to get away with this for a long time so personally I would not be surprised in the slightest if John Famolaro was actually a serial killer and got caught with Denise. However, again, we cannot confirm that. I'm just stating that based off of the evidence out there, but I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one. So let me know in the comments below. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you subscribe. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on Killer Instinct every Wednesday across all podcast platforms and YouTube, and you are not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys, and until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye.